Well, welcome everybody. My name is Dr. Roger Schwelt. I am a pulmonary and critical care specialist. Um, I have my uh, associate professorship at Loma Linda University as well as uh, University of California, Riverside. And uh, I've been asked to speak to you. And I think one of the things that uh, we're gonna talk about today definitively is, is, the, is the title, The Definitive Place of COVID-19 in Biblical Eschatology. But it's kind of an attention grabber. And as you'll find out that this talk is, is actually about much more than just COVID-19. Actually, there's very little to do with COVID-19 in here uh, because uh, biblical eschatology is so much bigger than that. And it talks about where we, we're gonna talk about where we are in the stream of time. So uh, if we, uh, before we get started though, let's, uh, let's have a, a word of prayer and just bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, please uh, be with us today as we look at your word and where we are in the stream of that time, and where we are going, and what it is that we need to be concerned about with right now. In thy name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so we're gonna move quickly, uh, and um, I hope you'll be able to keep up. It's after lunch, so I know that sometimes uh, you can get a little drowsy, so just try to wake up, shake off the, the things, and, and here we go. So as Seventh-day Adventists, we know about the prophecies of Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. We know very well that these prophecies were given to us, and there was a, it was a time prophecy. And in fact, this is the last time prophecy, the prophecy on, that ended on October 22nd, 1844. As it turns out, we were very clear about when this was going to happen, but we were not very clear about what it was that was going to happen. And that's why this led to the great disappointment, okay? All of the prophecies after 1844 are the flip of that. We know exactly what is going to happen. We just don't know when it's going to happen. And if someone tells you that they know when something is going to happen, I would be very dubious about that. And so the, the, the thing that we've been given as Seventh-day Adventists has to do with the three angels' messages. I'm not going to read it for you because you know what it is. Essentially, the first angel's message is that judgment has come. Number two, that Babylon has fallen, and that finally, number three, don't get the mark of the beast. But I think more than anything else, because let's face it, the three angels' messages actually started before 1844. The, the single text in the Bible that I believe has to do with us as Seventh-day Adventists more than any other text, the one text in the Bible that we can point to and say, that is ours, is Revelation chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth, sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, and here it is, this is what it boils down to, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And that is what we have been tasked with. That is the number one. You are an ambassador from heaven, and this, you have to embody the foreign policy of heaven on this earth as that ambassador. And what is the foreign policy of heaven? on this earth, it is that text. That is the bottom line. That is your instructions. So, if we, need to, if we wanna know where we are in the stream of prophecy, we need to know what prophecy is telling us. And I love this chart because I can prove to you that I had nothing to do with this chart because it was created before I was even born. In 1970, uh, Gordon Collier, you can actually get this chart at ceilingtime.com and you can purchase it there. But the thing I like about this is that it divides the time period from 1844, which is the last time prophecy, until the end into three compartments. Three very important compartments. That's something that I want you to remember. The first compartment is going from 1844 to the National Sunday Law. That is star one to star two. The second component is going from star two to star three, which is from the National Sunday Law to the close of probation. And when I say the close of probation, I mean the close of probation on the very last person on the planet Earth, okay? Because we know that when does judgment begin in the house of the Lord? It begins first, correct? So this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for the last person. This is when Michael stands up in Daniel chapter 12. This is when Jesus Christ stands up and his work is done in the most holy. And then the period of time from the close of probation to the second coming of Christ is this third period. It is where uh, the plagues are falling, okay? And that is the third period of time. So let's talk a little bit about the things that are happening during these periods of time, because I think it's very important to understand that as we move forward. In this first period of time, which is where we are, 
How do I know we're there? Well, because there's no National Sunday Law at this point, right? So we must be between one and two. This is where the church is being justified. The dead is being judged. We are supposed to be preaching the three angels' messages, which is, according to Ellen White, justification by faith. We also have righteousness by faith, which is what we are learning about, but we are not yet completely righteous, are we? Because we are living in sin still. That's the problem. This is when the former rain is falling. Now, I want you to be unclear what the difference is between the former rain and the latter rain. Do you know what the difference is between the former rain and the latter rain? The former rain is what makes you clean. What does the latter rain do? Does the latter rain make you clean? It does not make you clean. It seals you. That may come as a surprise to some of you. The, the latter rain does not make you clean. You have to be clean before the latter rain falls. And herein lies the problem, okay, for a lot of people. This is where we are supposed to be turning away from sin. Now, is the, former, is the latter rain falling right now? No. Is the former rain falling right now? Yes. We are in between number one and number two. After number two, some point, we don't know exactly when, but God, or Jesus in heaven, God in heaven in the most holy place will switch. They will no longer be judging the dead. They will move on to the what? The living. And when they are done, I say, as someone's name comes up in the judgment, when they are done judging that person, can that person change? It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard for God to be judging people over and over. So what has to happen to that person? They have to be sealed. And what is going to be doing the sealing? The latter rain. Okay? So the church is sanctified at this point. The judging of the living is going to occur after the National Sunday Law. And it's going to start where? Where does judgment begin? In the house of the Lord. It's going to be you and me who have the books on the shelf, not the guy in darkest Peru who has never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Starting with us. Okay? So... The living are being judged. Sunday law persecution is occurring during this time. There is a loud cry to leave Babylon. There's another thing that the latter rain does. The latter rain, in addition to sealing those that have been sealed, it also caused people in Babylon, out of Babylon, into the church. Okay? That's the other role of the latter rain. Uh, sealing begins with the Seventh-day Adventists. There is no sin in that church at this point. Would you want to have sin when you're sealed? So we go to Leone Meadows every year before there was a fire uh, in, in California, Northern California, and uh, we would always do ceramics. So we, my wife always makes me, my wife is sitting right here. She always says, okay, you know, we, you know what it's time to do? So we got to go to ceramics and we always get a little Christmas ornament because every year we got to make the Christmas ornament and we got to paint something new on there. And then before it's done, it's got to go into the, the iron, right? The oven to heat it up, to fire it. Once you fire it, can you make any changes? Nope. So the latter rain is the oven. The changes that you want to make have to happen before it goes into the oven. So you don't want any sin here, right? So no other people join the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is where we die to self 100%. There are martyrs. There will be martyrs. There will be people that will die under the message of the three angels' message. It occurs during the little time of trouble, which is between two and three. This is also where Lucifer impersonates Christ. Okay? The, and then finally, we have the close of probation. So now everybody's judged. No more names are coming up in the judgment. Christ throws down the censer. He comes out of the most holy place. And what does he say? Behold, I come and I bring my what with me? Reward. Reward. Right. So now what's happening is that because nobody can, can be convinced, because everybody is sealed one way or the other, um, is Jesus going to allow his elect to die? No. And so this is where we have that we can invoke Psalms 91. A thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. There shall neither, neither shall any what come nigh their dwelling. Plague. When does this Psalms 91 take place? Is it now? After the close of probation, exactly. In fact, it tells you at the very beginning. It tells you at the very beginning of that psalm that it's taking place here. Why? Because just as Jesus Christ stands in the presence of God without an intercessor, we have a model for that. We have a model. That's when the high priest on the Day of Atonement goes into the most holy place without an intercessor. That's when man will be there in 
the most holy place without an intercessor, because he's done. What is, how does Psalms 91 start? He who dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And the rest of that chapter is all about this period of time. So to say, to stand up now, before there is a wicked, are there any wicked on the planet? There are, wicked, there are people who do wicked things, but are you judging before God has a chance to judge? God has not even switched the living yet. So how can we say that they're wicked people or that they are wicked and that they're going to get their reward? How? Think about that. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Okay? Psalms 91 is right here. And to say that a plague is not going to come near your dwelling because you're going, to, you're going to use the promises of Psalms 91, what are you saying? You're actually judging people before God has judged them. It's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? How do you know that you're not one of those wicked? We don't. So we have to read the Bible and understand Bible prophecy. The seven last plagues are going to fall. The Sunday law, the close of probation for all. This is known as the great time of trouble, Jacob's time of trouble. There is no intercessor in heaven. Christ leaves the most holy place. We're all about to go home. We're still on earth, but sin has no power and no righteous die during this period of time. So do you, do you see these three places? Seal these in your mind. This is really important for you to understand because it's going to become important as we move on. Now, I call these things, it'll become more important later, I call these, this area, this period of time, I call this the 13th. Just go with me on this. I call this period of time here the 14th. You'll see why. And I call this period of time the 15th. You'll see why as well. Okay? I want to be clear. The former rain cleans during the judgment of the dead. That's now. The latter rain seals when you have the judgment of the living. The former rain is before the National Sunday Law, generally. The latter rain is after the National Sunday Law, generally. All of the church who want to be in the church have to be righteous. Because if the latter rain is going to fall, it's going to seal you the way you are. Do you see why God has to make you righteous before he can send the latter rain? Do you want the latter rain today? No. People pray for the latter rain. If the latter rain were to come right now, how many people would be sealed the right way? Not a lot. What we should be doing is making use of the former rain so that we're ready for the latter rain. Do you, see, do you understand what I'm talking about? Okay, here we go. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it is first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? That's 1 Peter 4, 17. You don't believe me about this latter rain thing? Here we go. Testimonies. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters to cleanse the soul temple of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples in the day of Pentecost. The latter rain will come and the blessing of God will fill every soul that is purified from every defilement. It is our work today to yield our souls to Christ that we may be fitted for the time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, fitted for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's the motto of this message this weekend? Work while it is still day because the night cometh. So what happened? In 1888, in that year, something major, two major things happened. Number one, A.T. Jones was the man that defended against the subcommittee in the U.S. Senate a law called the Blair Bill, which was a national Sunday law, and he was successful in knocking it down. And I'll tell you why he was successful in knocking it down, because we were not ready as a church for the national Sunday law. Because what happens after the national Sunday law? The latter rain. God knew that in 1888, the same man that defended us against the National Sunday Law would present to us, with his partner, righteousness by faith. And would we accept it? We did not accept it. If we don't accept righteousness by faith, what happens? Do we get sealed the right way or the wrong way? The wrong way. God doesn't want us to be sealed the wrong way. So in his mercy, he delayed it. 
Do you mean to teach universal salvation, Wagner says? Someone may ask, we mean to teach just what the Word of God teaches, that the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Titus 2.11, God wrought out salvation for every man and has given it to him, but the majority spurn it and throw it away. The judgment will reveal the fact that full salvation was given to every man and that the lost have deliberately thrown away their birthright possession. So here we go. In 1888, we had a chance. Our turn was to come to the Jordan River, and we had two faithful out of the spies who preached the message. But we, like the Israelites, didn't believe the two spies. We believed the ten other spies. And so we had to wander in the wilderness again for another generation or two or three or even four. How long is a generation? Forty years? Yeah, that's about right. So here's the thing. We, we don't have a, a time prophecy, but we have a stop sign. What's the stop sign? You cannot pass this point until you are righteous. God is waiting. You have to, before you can proceed past this point, you have to have righteousness. Now, I don't want to, I'm not preaching perfectionism here. That's what the whole thing is about what we're about to talk about here. But you understand that if you're not righteous and you get sealed, you get sealed the wrong way. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. So this is righteousness by faith. Unless we have a true understanding of righteousness by faith, we can't go to the 14th. Does that make sense? Okay. And there's another stop sign at number three, the close of probation. All who come unto God's house must be sealed before Jesus throws down the censer. That's the other stop sign. So we're not too concerned about the second stop sign because that has to do with people that are out of the church in Babylon that are coming in. And that's why we're going to be doing a lot of work on the 14th. That's why some of us are going to be in prison. That's why some of us are going to be dying. Because we'll be okay with that so long as it brings other people into the church. Does that make sense? Because if we are dead to self, then we're not, we don't care about dying. Does that make sense? If you're dead, are you worried about dying? No. So you are basically imitating Christ if Christ is in you. Did Christ, have a, did Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane have a right to say no and go back to heaven? He did. But why did he stay? Was he concerned about his body being pierced? Was he, he was not concerned about that. He was doing, there to do the job of the Father. And that's why he did it. And we will also follow the same example. I saw four angels. This is what it boils down to. I saw four angels. This is early writings, page 38. I saw four angels who had a work to do in the earth, and they were on their way to accomplish it. Jesus was clothed with priestly garments. He gazed in pity at the remnant, then raised his hands with a deep voice of pity, crying out. Listen to this and emblazon this on your memory, because this is what Christ is doing right now. Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from God who sat at the great white throne and was shed all about Jesus. Then I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth and waving something up and down in his hand and crying with a loud voice, hold, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. This is what's happening right now. Stuff is ready to just come across this planet right now. Okay, all of the four winds are ready to come out. It's ready to fly on this planet. We're ready to have absolute chaos. Christ is saying, don't do it yet. Why? Because of you. Literally, because of us in the church. He's waiting for us. Several have written me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. So, we have this stop sign. We cannot go through this stop sign. You cannot go to the 14th. You cannot go to the 15th. Something has to happen before you get to the 14th. And what is it? All who are in God's house, that's us, must be righteous before the ceiling begins. I love this part. This is Romanesco Broccoli. This is a natural thing that God made. Do you notice something about this? I love God how he does this in science. So you see bumps, but you see on those bumps are smaller bumps, and on those bumps are smaller bumps. It's a pattern. God uses patterns. And what I do is when I look at this, and I look at uh, what God has put up there, in terms of the, the pattern, I see this pattern happening over and over and over again. Let me, sh 
Let me tell you. After that door closes on the close of probation, what happens? There are seven last plagues. And then what happens at the end of the seven last plagues? The righteous are saved by the skin of their teeth, and the wicked are destroyed. Correct? How many times have you seen that in the Bible? Many times. Noah's ark closes. And how many days do they wait? Seven days. And the righteous are saved. And what happens to the wicked? Exactly. Jericho. Joshua marches around Jericho. How many days? After Jericho is shut up, right? And then what happens to the wicked? They're destroyed. But what happens to the small remnant that's in the middle of of the wall? They're saved by the skin of their teeth. And I could tell you this over and over. Are these stories that are telling us of what's really going to happen at the end? I I believe that they are, and I believe this is where we're going. So I look at the Passover story. And as it turns out on the Passover story, there are three days in the Passover. There's the 13th, there's the 14th, and there's the 15th of the first month of the year, which is Nisan. And by the way, when did those days end? And the evening and the morning were the first. They end at sunset. When do they end? Work while it is still because the night is coming on. So in other words, when the sun goes down, can you do any work? So notice this. On the 13th, check this out. On the 13th, when, before you go into the Passover, what does everybody have to be before they can take part in the Passover? There's a stop sign. What what do you have to be? Circumcised. It says it right there in Exodus 20, or sorry, 12, 43 to 48. I'm going to turn this a little bit this way so it can, there we go. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof, but every man's servant that is brought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then he shall eat thereof. In other words, you can't take part in the Passover unless every foreigner, everybody that's in your house is circumcised. Now, I'm not saying, that obviously, we need to do this. This is a shadow. But what does circumcision mean? Right? Circumcision. You're not going to believe this, folks. This is amazing. When I saw this, I almost fell out of my chair. Because in Romans chapter 4, Paul tells us exactly what circumcision is. Can he receive the sign of circumcision? A what? A seal of the righteousness of faith. Circumcision is a shadow of righteousness by faith. And just like you can't take part in the Passover unless you're circumcised, you can't take part in the big Passover unless you have righteousness by faith. It gets better. Because not only that, the Jews on this day, before you go into the 14th, guess what has to be removed out of your house? Leaven. You can't find any leaven in the house of a Jew when they get to Nisan 14. When that sun goes down 24 24 hours before the Passover, all leaven has to be removed. Look at the Bible text. They'll tell you. In fact, to this very day, this very day, the day before, the kids make a game of it. They go through the house, and they find little bits of leaven that they find. It's kind of like a search game that they do. And they take it out of the house before the sun goes down at exactly that time. Do you know what they use to get that leaven out of the house? They use two instruments. They use a feather, and they use a spoon. Something made by God, and something made by cooperating to find the leaven, and to take it out of the house. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting. All leaven has to be removed at exactly the same time that we are saying that you have to have righteousness by faith and you need to have sin out of your life. I find it very interesting. Oh, I'm over on this side. Okay. In the first month of the 14th day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and the 20th day of the month at even. That's the feast of unleavened bread. But guess what? During the Passover, Egyptians come into the homes of the Israelites on that 14th day at exactly the same time that we, as Seventh-day Adventists, know that people in Babylon will be coming into the church. Ellen White says in Signs of the Times, March 25th, 1880, there were quite a number of Egyptians who were led to acknowledge by the manifestations of the sign and wonder shown in Egypt that the gods whom had worshipped without knowledge 
and had no power to save or destroy, and that the God of the Hebrews was the only true God. They begged to be permitted to come into the houses of the Israelites with their families upon that fearful night. When the angel of God should slay the firstborn of the Egyptians, the Hebrews welcomed these believing Egyptians into their homes, and the latter pledged themselves henceforth to choose the God of Israel as their God, and to leave Egypt, and to go with the Israelites to worship the Lord. Do you see history playing out? Okay. Then the close of probation happens. Now, when the close of probation happens, it's always a door that shuts. So there should be a story, there should be a a door that's closing in this story, and that's exactly what happens. Moses says in Exodus 20, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, the dipping in the blood, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. We're shutting the door. What happens after they shut the door? The death angel. And so here we have it. Is it possible that everything that happens after that door shuts in Exodus is a play on what is about to unfold in the grand scheme of things? And I will tell you that's exactly what happens. Because judgment came at midnight on the 15th of the, of the month. Now let me explain something to you. Because the month, the Jewish month begins at a new moon. And because the moon cycle is 29 days, the 15th of the month is always, always, always going to be a full moon. That is why the Passover moon is always full. Now when did the death angel come? At midnight. When you have noontime, the sun is always the highest at noon. Guess what? On the 15th, when you have a full moon, Where is the moon at midnight? The highest. In fact, it is the highest, it is the brightest, and it is the fullest. It is a moon which is the lesser light, and it is what? It's fully reflecting the light of the sun. Did I say S-U-N, Meredith, or S-O-N? Okay. I think it means the same thing in this case. It is the S-O-N of righteousness. It is the S-U-N of righteousness because judgment at the end comes at midnight when the church is fully reflecting the light of God. Do you know what Ellen White says? She says in Maranatha, page 255, many do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of God without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. Those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble, she uses the same analogy, must reflect the image of Jesus fully. It was at midnight that God chose to deliver his people as the wicked were mocking around them. Suddenly the sun appeared, shining his strength, and the moon was still. This is early writings, page 285. It is at midnight that God manifests his power for the deliverance of his people. Great controversy, 636. So, the Israelites were free from bondage, but still in Egypt after that time, on the 15th. God's people will still be free from sin, but still on earth at that time, on the 15th. Israelites ate unleavened bread for seven days before crossing the Red Sea. God's people remained sealed without sin for seven plagues before Christ's return. Pharaoh's strategy was to run the Israelites into the sea to have them killed. What does the sea represent? Peoples. God's people will be pushed on the people to have them killed. There will be authorities, religious authorities, that will sandwich God's people against the people of this world. Correct? God wrots a miracle and opens the sea and the Israelites walk on dry ground. What does that mean? That not a single molecule of water will touch God's people. How do I read that? Not every every weapon formed against his people shall shall fall. God's people will not be touched by the attackers. Here we invoke Psalms 91. We're doing it intelligently because we see where it makes sense. When Pharaoh follows the Israelites into the Red Sea, the sea closes up on them and they are never seen again. Does it not say in Ellen White, does she not say that people at the end will realize that they have been deceived by their masters and will turn on them? Mercy. So what happens here is exactly what happens at the end. I believe these stories tell us, but there's more patterns because that's not the only Passover. Do you remember 40 years later, after they were wandering in the wilderness, they come to Jericho and that is the next Passover, 40 years later. A lot of people have died and a lot of people have been born, all of them uncircumcised, all of them. Well, all the males uncircumcised. So what happens? If we read about the text here in Joshua, They come to Gilgal. What's the first thing that Joshua has them do before the Passover comes on? 
Circumcision, you can read it there in Joshua 5, 2 to 9. And what did they do? It says in Joshua 5, 10, then they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. So far, everything's going well. What do you expect to have happen next? A door must close. And sure enough, what does it say? It says that, well, before that happens, Joshua 5, it came to pass that when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Thou art for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereupon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Do you know that Joshua, the name Joshua, is actually Jesus? So let me get this right. Here we have a guy whose name means Jesus, and he's standing in a holy place, and he is with his superior. For Seventh-day Adventists, this should mean only one thing to you about where we are. And notice where it's happening. It's happening exactly in the story where it should be happening. Because the next thing that happens is it says in Joshua 6.1, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Does that remind you of anything? They're sealed. Everybody is sealed in one camp or the other. And what is the very next thing that happens? The very next thing that happens is very interesting to me. Because Joshua comes out of a holy place where he was told to take off his sandals and he gathers his people and sword and his army for what? Judgment. He makes war against a rebellious city which contains only a faithful remnant. The faithful remnant exists because of a previously unfaithful woman who hides two spies. These two spies promised that anyone in the house that died, their blood would be on the spies, but anyone that died outside, the blood would be on themselves, and they gave her a sign to post in her window, a red cord. Compare that with what we know is going to happen. Jesus comes out of the most holy place with his sword and gathers his army for judgment. He makes war against a rebellious earth, which contains only a faithful remnant. That faithful remnant exists because of a previously unfaithful church that now hides two witnesses in its heart, the Old and the New Testament. And that Old and New Testament has told us that if anybody stands with the Lord, let his blood be on the Lord, but if anybody stands outside of the Lord, their blood be on their own heads. Joshua marches around the city for how many days? Seven days. Only the faithful remnant are saved. Rahab marries Salmon. Rahab. The prostitute marries Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz. Boaz and Ruth are the ancestors of King David, who is the ancestor of the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary, with the help of the Holy Spirit, gives rise to a man who keeps the commandments of God and has the faith of Jesus Christ. Seven plagues fall after Jesus leaves the most holy place. God's people are saved. This once unfaithful church gives rise to a chaste virgin, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.2. This chaste virgin marries Jesus Christ. But this pure church, with the help of the latter rain, this church, this bride on this planet, with the help of the latter rain, which is the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that helped out the Virgin Mary. Do you understand what I'm saying here? We have the shadow Virgin Mary giving rise to Jesus Christ, the man who had kept all the commandments of God and had the faith of Jesus Christ. And now we have on an enormous scale, the same spirit, this time coming into the church, which is a chaste virgin. And what is the result of that? The 144,000. The remnant of the seed, which has the faith of Jesus Christ and keeps the commandments of God. Do you see how this is all? It's, it's, it's one big pattern that God loves to show you over and over and over again. If you knew how to study the Bible, Ellen White says, you would not need the testimonies. Because every aspect of our faith is in the Bible, written thousands of years ago in the narratives of the Bible. So we, we now come to the basis for today's discussion, which is the, the greatest Passover of all time. Now, I don't believe in keeping the feasts, but I believe that the feast gives us information that we can glean from it to today. And this is one of the most amazing weeks of history. If you'll notice, it is written by John the Revelator. 
John, who is also one of the gospel writers, do you know that John the Revelator, who wrote his gospel, dedicated an entire half of his gospel, the latter half of his gospel, is on nothing but the last week of Jesus' life? Do you think that's important? Absolutely it is. So we have Simon's Feast. We have the same thing. We have the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. We have the Last Supper. We're, we're going to talk, the rest of our talk today is about this incident right here, the Last Supper, because I believe in the stream of time, we are right now at the Last Supper, and I'll show you what that means and why that's important, but let's go, look, let's look at the other things that happened that week. Prayer in the garden. Jesus prays three times, not my will, but thine be done. What is, what is, the, what is the thing that is taking society today? Follow your heart. Do whatever you want. Don't, you don't need to follow authority. Just do whatever you want to do. And what does Jesus say? He stands up at right that same moment and says, not my will, but thine be done. I think that's a model for us. What about the trials? At the trials that Jesus was, was taken to, what was the very first thing he was accused of falsely? Of being a seditionist, of wanting to overthrow the government. I think that has, we know that Ellen White says, she says, we already know what you're going to be accused of. We already know what we're going to be accused of at the end of time. We're going to be accused of disloyalty to the government. We're going to be accused of, anar of anarchy. So if Jesus was accused of that, do we think we're not going to be accused of that? Is the, is the servant any better than the master? Okay, it's going to happen. What about Judas? We'll talk more about Judas. What about Barabbas? So at the same time that we know that Satan is going to impersonate Christ, we have a character by the name of Barabbas, whose name literally means son of the father, Bar-Abbas. And Barabbas was a known criminal who liked to incite people against governments. But who calls for Barabbas? The religious leaders and Satan's demons in the crowd all basically excite the crowd into an emotional frenzy, and who do they call for? Who is it the one that they want? Who do most of the people call for? It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Crucifixion. As Jesus Christ dies on the cross and his body dies, we too, by this point, the church will have had to have died to self completely. Instead of, as Jesus refuses the drink from the Roman soldier, so too are we going to have to refuse the wine of Babylon. And then, in an amazing co coincidence, no. As Jesus says, it is finished, and, and, and ceases his ministry on earth, the curtain is ripped from top to bottom, and the Spirit of God, which dwells in the most holy place, comes out and leaves that building, and that building never again is a place for the remission of sin. At the very same time, here, Jesus Christ is in heaven, ministering before God in the most holy. He throws down the censer and says, it is done. And Christ himself comes out of the most holy. And never again is that building used for the remission of sin. happens exactly, and he finishes his heavenly ministry. So in this construct, Jesus Christ finishes both ministries exactly at the same point, right here. Then what happens? Remember what happens. They took the body of Christ, and they sealed him in a tomb so nobody could touch the body of Christ. Jesus Christ will take the body of Christ and will seal them so that nobody can touch the body of Christ. At this period of time, for the first time in history, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ ceased to exist. For the first time in history, nobody stood between man and God. For that day, that was the first time that ever happened. And folks, once again, we will come to a period of time where once again, nobody will stand between man and God at exactly the same time. And at the end of this period here, guess what happens? Jesus Christ rises from the dead. And with him, 
he pulls many other people with him, and they, raise, they rise from the dead. <clears throat> Didn't it, does it not say, does Paul not say, that if Christ did not rise from the dead, there was no way that we could rise from the dead? That is because he is the first fruits. And the only reason why we can have hope in a resurrection is because Jesus himself put down his power voluntarily and picked it up again and rose from the dead. But is it just mere coincidence? Is it mere supposition that I'm saying that these events that happened during that week may be a guide as to how things are going to happen at the end of time? The spirit of prophecy tells us. In the Review and Herald, January 30th, 1900, part A, paragraph 8, the scenes of the betrayal, the rejection, and the crucifixion of Christ have been reenacted and will again be reenacted on an immense scale. So where are we? In that story of the last, of the, of the last week of Christ's life, we are here. We are at the Last Supper. And so this, I've spent a lot of time to give you the foundational, the foundation as to why we can look at the Last Supper and say exactly where we are in the stream of time and what is going to happen next. The thing I want you to understand is that we are straddling this, this item called the National Sunday Law. We have the 13th on this side. We have the 14th on this side. Sunset happens right here. And before the sun can set, we must have righteousness by faith and all leaven has to be removed. We are here at the Last Supper. The Last Supper is divided into two parts. You guys should know this as Seventh-day Adventists. It's emblazoned in our memory. When we say we're having communion next Sabbath, what does that mean? There's two parts to it, correct? What are the two parts? The foot washing and the communion. Guess what you, guess Guess what the foot washing represents? The former rain. Guess what the communion represents? The latter rain. Because the latter rain is coming inside of you. And when you drink and eat of the communion, it's going inside of you. Check this out. This is amazing. On the, I'm, this is, I'm, taking, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let Ellen White talk. Okay? But I want, you to, I want you to take, this is, this is the amazing part. Ellen White is going to describe in detail what is happening in that upper room. And I want you, instead of reading what happened in the upper room, I want you to now superimpose that about what's happening in the upper room. Because Jesus is still there. Jesus, was, is, Jesus is as much in our upper room as he was in that upper room. On this last evening with his disciples, Jesus had much to tell them. If they had been prepared to receive what he had longed to impart, they would have been saved from heartbreaking anguish, from disappointment and unbelief. But Jesus saw that they could not bear what he had to say. As he looked into their faces, the words of warning and comfort were stayed upon his lips. Moments passed in silence. Jesus appeared to be waiting. The disciples were ill at ease. The sympathy and tenderness awakened by Christ's grief seemed to have passed away. His sorrowful words pointing to his own suffering had made little impression. The glances they cast upon each other told of jealousy and contention. There was strife among them. Which of them would be accounted the greatest? This contention carried on in the presence of Christ, grieved and wounded him. The disciples clung to their favorite idea that Christ would assert his power and take his position on the throne of David. Stop there. The disciples were more concerned about the temporal government that they were living under rather than the king of kings who was sitting right next to them. They were more concerned about the tempest in the sea than the king of kings who was sleeping in the bottom of their boat. Do you see a pattern? And in each heart still long for the highest place in the kingdom. They had placed their own estimate upon themselves and upon one another. And instead of regarding their brethren as more worthy, they had placed themselves first. The request of James and John to sit at the right and left of Christ's throne excited indignation of the others. That the two brothers should presume to ask for the highest position so stirred the ten that alienation threatened. They felt that they were misjudged. 
that their fidelity and talents were not appreciated. Judas was the most severe upon James and John. When the disciples entered the supper room, their hearts were full of resentful feelings. Judas, this is, folks, this is right before the requirements for righteousness by faith and no leaven. Think about what's going through Jesus' mind. How am I going to get these guys through? Right? Judas pressed next to Christ on the left. John was on the right. If there was a highest place, Judas was determined to have it. Skip down. But each of the disciples, yielding to wounded pride, determined not to act the part of a servant. All manifested a stoical unconcern, seeming unconscious that there was anything for them to do. By their silence, they refused to humble themselves. How was Christ to bring these poor souls where Satan would not gain a decided victory over them? How could he show that a mere profession of discipleship did not make them disciples or ensure them a place in his kingdom? How could he show that it is loving service, true humility, which constitutes real greatness? How was he to kindle love in their hearts and enable them to comprehend what he longed to tell them? The disciples made no move toward serving one another. And here's the quote that's really bone-chilling. Jesus waited for a time to see what they would do. And I think this is exactly where we are right now. Jesus is waiting for a time to see what we're going to do. Because he's about to act. And watch what Jesus does. Jesus waited for a time to see what they would do. Then he, the divine teacher, rose from the table, laying aside the outer garment that would have impeded his movements. He took a towel and girded himself. With surprised interest, the disciples looked on and in silence waited to see what it was to follow. After he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewithin he was girded, this action opened the eyes of the disciples. Bitter shame and humiliation filled their hearts. They understood the unspoken rebuke and saw themselves all together in a new light. If you want to know whether or not you're on the right track for righteousness by faith, you're going to have the same feelings that the disciples had. Do you feel bitter shame and humiliation? If not, study more. So Christ expressed his love for his disciples. Their selfish spirit filled him with sorrow, but he entered into no controversy with them regarding their difficulty. Let me read that again. Their selfish spirit filled him with sorrow, but he entered into... No controversy with them regarding their difficulty. Instead, he gave them an example that they would never forget. His love for them was not easily disturbed or quenched. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came from God and went to God and had a full consciousness of his divinity. But he laid aside his royal crown and kingly robes and had taken the form of a servant. One of his last acts of life on earth was to gird himself as a servant and perform a servant's part. And this is that part. So again, here we are before the sun goes down. Righteousness by faith, all sin removed. Are we on our way? Because we have the foot washing and then we have the bread and the wine. The former rain is the foot washing. The latter rain seals. It is the bread and the wine. All of these texts, Psalms 51, Ezekiel 36, Acts 22, over and over again, we see that the washing cleanses us from sin. And it is the time period that we must have righteousness by faith. So we are here. The disciples knew nothing of the purpose of Judas. Jesus alone could read his secret. Yet he did not expose him. Jesus hungered for his soul. He felt him such a burden as for Jerusalem when he wept over the doomed city. Think about this. Jesus washed each of the disciples' feet, everybody's feet. Eleven of them, he was able to declare them as being clean. All of you are clean except for one. Why? Think about this. The eleven, Ellen White says that the eleven knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And so as a result of that, when he got down to be a servant, that meant something to them. Because here's the king of the universe coming to serve them 
as a servant. They realized, who are we to be pretentious? Who are we to be asking to be when the king of kings is, is washing our feet? In other words, and after that, Jesus was able to declare them clean. So what I'm telling you is this. They were made righteous because of faith. Judas, on the other hand, saw that Jesus washed his feet and he said, there's no way he could be the son of God if he's washing my feet. Do you see the difference? Righteousness, am I talking about perfectionism here? Am I talking about works? Tell me what works that these 11 disciples do to merit them, Jesus Christ saying, you are clean. But was there a true conversion? Absolutely. And did it happen with Judas? Absolutely not. When Jesus, Jesus girded himself with a towel to wash the dust from their feet, he desired that the very act to wash away the alienation, the jealousy, the pride from their hearts. This was of far more consequence than the washing of their dusty feet. With the spirit they had then, not one of them was prepared. Listen again. Not one of them was prepared for the communion with Christ. Why? Because if they had communion with Christ with that kind of character, what would have happened to them? The same thing that happened to Judas. Until brought into a state of humility and love, they were not prepared to partake of the Paschal Supper or to share in the memorial service which Christ was about to institute. Their hearts must be cleansed. Romans 2, 28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. So question, do you need to be circumcised before you go on to the 14th? The answer, yes, of the hearts. The holy watcher from heaven is present at this season to make it one of soul searching, of conviction of sin, and of the blessed assurance of sins forgiven. Christ in the fullness of his grace is there to change the current of thoughts and to have that been running in selfish channels. The Holy Spirit quickens the sensibilities of those who follow the example of their Lord. As the Savior's humiliation for us is remembered, the thought links with thoughts. The chain of memories is called up, memories of God's great goodness and of the favor and tenderness of earthly friends. Blessings forgotten, mercies abused, kindnesses slighted are called to mind. Roots of bitterness that have been crowded out the precious plant of love are made manifest. Defects of character, neglect of duties, ingratitude to God, coldness toward our brethren are called to remembrance. Sin is seen in the light in which God views it. Our thoughts are not the thoughts of self-complacency, but of severe self-censure and humiliation. The mind is energized to break down every barrier that has caused alienation. Evil thinking and evil speaking are put away. Sins are confessed. They are forgiven. Folks, I'm describing to you the process of righteousness by faith. The subduing grace of Christ comes into the soul and the love of Christ draws hearts together in blessed unity. We must heed the stop sign. Where so, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. Who's guilty of the, literally, the blood and the body of the Lord? Judas. He is, the, he is the one who is guilty, right? Literally. He was the one that betrayed God. And did he eat unworthily? Was he declared clean? Was he one of the twelve? Is he a model, unfortunately, for those that are in the church that fail to get righteousness by faith? I'm sorry to say, yes. Let us not be Judas. Then he, lying on Jesus' breast, answered unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give the sop. The sop is the food. When I have dipped it, and when he has dipped it in the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said unto him, thou, that thou doest, do quickly. Judas gets up. Now, when Judas gets up, it says something about the time of day. What does it say? It was night. So what does that mean? Are we on the left side of number two or are we on the right side of number two? The latter rain is falling. People are being sealed and the judgment of the living has begun. It would be nice. It would be very nice to get some sort of a consolidation here, a consolation from Ellen White to say somehow 
that Judas had passed some sort of probation at that point, because that would bring everything together, correct? Desire of Ages, page 654. In surprising confusion at the exposure of his purpose, Judas had hastily, rose hastily to leave the room. Then Jesus said unto him, that thou doest, doeth quickly. He that having received the sop went immediately out, and it was night. Night it was to the traitor as he turned away from Christ into the outer darkness. We are now firmly on the 14th. Until this step was taken, Judas had not passed beyond the possibility of repentance. But when he left the presence of his Lord and his fellow disciples, the final decision had been made. He passed the boundary line. Remember I was telling you about the kids that find the pieces of leaven and remove them? Do you know what they do with them when they remove them out of the house? They burn them before noon on the 14th. What happened to Judas? Judas was killed. He killed himself before noon on the 14th. Though Jesus knew Judas from the beginning, he washed his feet and the betrayer was privileged to unite with Christ in partaking of the sacrament. A long-suffering Savior held out every inducement of the sinner to receive him, to repent, and to be cleansed from the defilement of the sin. This is an example for us. For those of you who think that we're dealing with Judases in the church, I would tell you, first of all, God has not judged the living yet. Number one. Number two, when we supposed to be in error and sin, we are not to divorce ourselves from him. By no careless separation are we to leave him a prey to temptation or to drive him upon Satan's battleground. This is not Christ's method. It was because the disciples were erring and faulty that he washed their feet, and all but one of the twelve were thus brought to repentance. Satan is constantly seeking to introduce distrust, alienation, and malice upon God's people. We shall often be tempted to feel that our rights are invaded, even when there is no real cause for such feelings. Those who love for self is stronger than their love for Christ and his cause will place their own interests first and will resort to almost any expedient to guard and maintain them. Even many who appear to be conscientious Christians are hindered by pride and self-esteem from going privately to those whom they think in error, that they may talk with them in the spirit of Christ and pray together for one another. When they think themselves injured by their brethren, some will even go to the law instead of following the Savior's rule. The Lord says, under conviction of sin, remember that I died for you. When oppressed and persecuted and afflicted for my sake and the gospels, remember my love so great that I gave you my life. When your duties appear stern and severe and your burdens too heavy to bear, remember that for your sake I endured the cross, despising the shame. When your heart sinks, shrinks from the trying ordeal, remember that your Redeemer liveth and make intercession for you. Looking upon the crucified Redeemer, we more fully comprehend the magnitude and meaning of the sacrifice made by the majesty of heaven. The plan of salvation is glorified before us, and the thought of Calvary awakens, living the sacred emotions in our hearts. Praise to God, and the Lamb will be in our hearts and on our lips. For pride and self-worship cannot flourish in a soul that keeps fresh the memory of the scenes of Calvary. Here is the essence of righteousness by faith. He who beholds the Savior's matchless love will be elevated in thought, purified in heart, transformed in character. He will go forth to be a light to the world to reflect in some degree this mysterious love. The more we contemplate the cross of Christ, the more fully we shall adopt the language of the apostle when he said, quote, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Galatians 6.14. So here we are. We are in the upper room. We are at the foot washing. And God, Christ, is waiting to see what we're going to do. There are many other things that we could talk about. But I believe the question is again, where are we in the stream of time? And what is the definitive place of coronavirus in biblical eschatology? And unfortunately, all it is, is bad dinner conversation. That's all it is. And unfortunately, we found a lot of bad things to talk about over dinner. And this is just another one. And there's going to be others. But when is this going to end? It's going to end when somebody picks up the bowl and starts washing other people's feet. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, thank you so much for your opening your word today and for giving us wisdom. And you've given us the spirit of prophecy and these patterns and these stories so that we can draw from them, but clearly read the Bible and test all things. Isaiah 8.20, if it speak not according to the word, there is no light in them. Let us be Christians. Let us have the truth, but let us deal in the truth as Christ dealt in the truth. And help us to do that. More importantly, help us to understand that the, that the byword of today is righteousness by faith because it is light and the night cometh. In thy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.